sometime late in the conversation, he said to me, Tim, do you know what the most important thing in my life is right now? And I said, well, Mr. Rogers, I just met. How could I, how could I possibly know that? And he said, speaking with Mr. Tim Madigan on the telephone, and there's something about the way he said it where I knew he was being absolutely genuine. And I like to say that that is, was an early indication and a really good example of one of the foundations of his human greatness, which was to be wholly present to people in whatever circumstance he might find them. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. About 10 years ago, I was in the Newark airport with my mother. We walked by a bookstore, and prominently displayed there was a book entitled I'm Proud of You, Life Lessons from My Friend Fred Rogers by Tim Madigan. Well, when I was a kid, I used to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood every day, along with Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and Zoom, so my mom immediately purchased the book for me. That book, it turns out, became a very important resource. Tim Madigan's description of his close and surprising friendship with Mr. Rogers was inspiring in ways that I hadn't anticipated. I've recommended it to so many people as an example of a type of musser or ethical literature. I can attest that I'm Proud of You contains lessons that are important for all of us in the Orthodox world, regardless of the fact that neither Mr. Rogers nor Tim Madigan comes from within the Jewish tradition. And because the lessons are genuinely profound, I was so honored that Tim generously agreed to come on this podcast to discuss his unique friendship with Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers has become ubiquitous in our world, perhaps now even more than when he was alive and producing his television show. Because of books, documentaries, and a film last year starring Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers is now almost a symbol of goodness. But sometimes I get frustrated in seeing him portrayed almost as a childlike and naive individual. From Tim Madigan's description... We learn about a spiritually deep and intellectually robust individual who embodied a singular goodness, which is so often lacking in our world. And that's the real reason that I wanted to speak to Tim, because discourse, both within our Jewish communities and beyond them, has devolved to the point that we often can't speak with anyone who thinks differently without castigating them or considering them a type of enemy. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. That simple human kindness is becoming more and more atypical. We need more empathy. We need to learn how to be present. All of us should pay attention to what Mr. Rogers tried to teach us when we were little kids, because the lessons are now as important as ever. Before we get to the interview, let me quickly remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. We recently started a new Facebook group called the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where we honestly discuss issues in the Orthodox Jewish community. Please consider joining the conversation there. If you would like to support this podcast, there are a couple of different ways of doing so. First of all, and this is easy, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It means just giving a certain number of stars and then writing one or two sentences. It really helps, so thank you in advance. And second of all, please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. So please check that out. You're not going to be sorry. And finally, 
I will be offering a free one-hour Zoom discussion about how to get your own podcast off the ground on Wednesday, February 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll give more details about how to sign up right after the interview with Tim Madigan. In a journalism career spanning more than three decades, Tim has written for The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Politico, Reader's Digest, and for 30 years, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Tim's books include the critically acclaimed and best-selling The Burning, The Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, which is the definitive account of America's worst episode of racial violence. He's also published a novel of the greatest generation entitled Every Common Sight, and another work of nonfiction, Of the First Class, A History of the Kimball Art Museum. It was a 1995 assignment for the Star-Telegram that led to Tim's interview with Fred Rogers and a close friendship between the two men that lasted until Rogers' death in 2003. Tim's memoir, I'm Proud of You, is an intimate account of Fred Rogers' human greatness and a testament to the healing power of friendship. I'm sure you'll all enjoy this interview as much as I did. Tim Madigan, it's an honor to meet you, albeit over a distance of about 7,000 miles. I've admired your work for a very long time, and I thank you very much for joining me today on The Orthodox Conundrum. Oh, Scott, I can't tell you how happy uh, I am to be with you. Uh, You know, the miracle of Zoom or whatever we're doing this on, you know, uh, (laughs) to speak with someone so far away and and the world is getting smaller and smaller. So I'm really happy to, uh, to be able to do this with you. In the book, you describe how you met the incomparable Fred Rogers, but can you tell our listeners in brief the story of how you first met and then became such close friends? Sure. I, um, it was uh, the fall of 1995, and I was working at a newspaper. Uh, you know, for, for 40 years, I was a newspaper reporter. Uh, I was working at a new- newspaper in Fort Worth, Texas, and I was working on a story about violence on television and how it affects children. And a colleague of mine said, you know, you should interview for that interview for that story. You should interview Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Rogers. Captain Kangaroo, for those of us of a certain age, he was my Mr. Rogers. I'm 63 and there's kind of a generational divide in America between those two. And I was on the far side of that. Anyway, I thought it was a great idea. So I made the necessary arrangements and literally one day. And one afternoon in the fall of 1995, Captain Kangaroo on the, on the phone talked to him about my topic. He's a lovely man too. hang up. A few minutes later, the phone rings. And it's uh, this voice that has become so recognizable to us all, or to so many of us, uh, you know, it says, well, hello, Tim. This is Fred Rogers calling from Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, and I'm going, holy cow. <laughs> that uh, voice. Yeah, that voice, that man. And so we talk, uh, I interview him about his program, what he hoped to achieve with it. Uh, in the context of my story. And so we talked about that for a long time. You know, he gave, he was very generous with his time. A lot of times when you get on the phone with so-called celebrities, like you're lucky to get 10 minutes. It seemed like we talked for an hour. Sometime late in the conversation, he said to me, Tim, do you know what the most important thing in my life is right now? And I said, well, Mr. Rogers, I just met. How could I, how could I possibly know that? And he said, speaking with Mr. Tim Madigan on the telephone. And there's something about the way he said it where I knew he was being absolutely genuine. And I like to say that that is, was an early indication and a really good example of one of the foundations of his human greatness, which was to be wholly present to people in whatever circumstance he might find them. Whether it was me on the phone or the guy handing out towels uh, at his health club or people he might meet on the street whether it was 
a briefest interaction or a lifelong friendship. He was wholly present to you when he was with you, completely without his own kind of preoccupations, his own agenda. He would take in whatever it was you had to share, and then he would respond from this kind of mystical place uh, with perfect compassion, uh, love, wisdom. But has always been so remarkable to me, never judgment. You know, it's amazing you quoted that quote. I actually have that quote open in front of me. I was planning on citing it to you because of everything in the book, that quote probably meant more to me than anything else. The idea of being, as you say, wholly present for whomever you're talking to. Mm-hmm. For example, I, as I was driving my daughter this morning, quoted that quote, and I talked to her about what it means in terms of not using a phone at the table when your family is present, et cetera, sure. et cetera. There's mm-hmm. so many ways it can be implemented. But what do you mean when you say that mystical place that it came from? What, what are you referring to? Well, I, 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 I suppose that different uh, religious traditions have different words for it. The Christian upbringing would call it Holy Spirit. What is it? It's a pure spiritual place, seemingly uncontaminated by the egos and insecurities and foibles more typically recognizable in humanity. Uh, but it would come, it was clearly coming from that place. And the purity of the, the source of that place was reflected in how he lived his life and how, how he responded to people in, in relationship. It makes me think about something which actually bothers me about the way that culture and society looks at Mr. Rogers too often, it seems to me, whether on talk shows or in filmmaking. It seems very often that Mr. Rogers is looked at not the way you're describing him, but as almost a naive, very, very good, simple person. And from reading your book and from what you're saying now, it sounds like he was anything but simple. He was a very deep person. Is that correct? That's a really important point, especially if you know, you're coming to him, you're only, if your only exposure to him was through his program. Because it's important to know that the person he saw in his program was Fred Rogers. He wasn't playing a character. That's how he was. But, you know, he realized his target audience was were children three, four, five years old. And he spoke to them in such a way that facilitated communication with people at age. You know, it turns out that that kind of communication is effective for people of any age. But his point was to, you know, in a very conscious way, to look through the lens of a television camera and make eye contact with every, be present to every person who watches program individually. Um, he never referred to his audiences in the plural. It was always neighbor. But it was a very deep, he had taken a spiritual gift of his and trained it and strengthened it over the course of his life. It's a very deep and in some ways very uh, complex foundation to, to what he did. And I think one of the reasons my book is valuable is that people got to see that more courageous and somewhat more sophisticated way he interacted with, with adults in relationship, particularly, right. you know, in the face of the kind of the suffering that was part of, you know, my, it was mostly my suffering in the book that he helped walk me through, but it was not a, a childish thing or a simple thing at all. Something you said a minute ago made me wonder you talked about how the person that we watched on television, albeit he is speaking to a very specific audience, but that really is Mr. Rogers. That's the real person. Did you ever wonder when you were talking to him, this has got to be a show. This has got to be an act. The person can't really be like that. To be so present and to be so gentle and willing to open up his heart. Did you ever have doubts about him that way? 
Well, I say in the book that I kept waiting for him to reveal himself to be more recognizably human in the sense that there would be a moment of pettiness. There would be a moment of a moment when he was anything but kind and thoughtful. And there were hundreds of pieces of correspondence between the two of us. And I was with him four times in person for extended periods. And, and I just never saw it. He was always that person. He was the embodiment of, he's, you know, it's been, it's been suggested by many that he was a kind of a contemporary saint. I think you can make the case, but he certainly embodied, that's just who he was. I think most of us have to make a conscious effort to uh, live those kind of virtues. I don't think he did. I just think that that's, that's who he was. You mentioned a moment ago, Tim, about how he helped you through your own suffering. And in the book, dramatically, you describe two very specific instances of that. I hope you don't mind my mentioning it. No, you talk not. about your own problems in your marriage, and you talk about the very tragic death of your brother Steve from cancer. Mm-hmm. And you say how Mr. Rogers helped you through these very, very difficult very, very difficult situations. Can you tell my listeners what you mean by Mr. Rogers helping you through? What, what did that entail? Well, it was, it was pretty dramatic in both cases. But most simply, and I will give you more, you know, the dramatic examples, but, but most simply, I think what, what it really was, was he was just with me during those things. He was just present to me during those times of pain. And, you know, and obviously in some cases in very profound ways, but the bottom line is he was just present. And when I met him, uh, I I realized particularly in retrospect how deeply depressed and, 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 and how much pain I was in. And the book begins, uh, with me putting up Christmas lights in our home in suburban Fort Worth, Texas, and I guess it was probably the holidays of 97 or 98. And I had a very heavy heart because it, I had told, you know, my wife and I had discussed a few days before a separation. And so I'm thinking about how to find furniture in an apartment, how we can tell the kids, can we make it through the holidays? But literally the thing I was most preoccupied by that day was how in the world am I going to tell Fred Rogers that I'm getting ready to leave my wife? this person who had devoted his life to children and families, and I was getting ready to blow up my own. Anyway, I finally went in after the lights were done. I went in and sat down on my computer and typed out a letter to him with tears streaming down my face. You know, dear Fred, I really hate to have to tell you this, but uh, this is what's going on in my house. And I asked him straight out. I mean, and, and this was subsequent to another thing I'll tell you about in a minute, but uh, mm-hmm. could you be proud of a person like this? And I mailed it away. Uh, and within a few days, I had his reply, which says, Dear Tim, bless your heart, but please know that I would never forsake you. That I would never stop loving you, that I will always be proud of you. Those of us who care about you are privileged to share your pain. You know, if only we lived closer, I would drive to your house, knock on your door. And, and uh, when you answered, I would take you into my arms and hug you tight. And he signed off by saying, and this at the moment of my greatest shame, he signed off by saying, you are my, my beloved brother, Tim, you are God's beloved son. And I think it's important to realize what he didn't say. 
He didn't say, he, did, he didn't try to problem solve. He didn't try to say, have you done this or you considered that or done this or, or he was just present. You know, please know that I would never forsake you. Uh, never forsake you. And the other thing, I was, the other thing I was referring to is, you know, in to a couple of years earlier in the summer of 1996, in the throes of this depression, I was referring to. And after he and I had been friends for six months or so, I realized that the friendship with him came with a real risk because he wanted to know your, the real unvarnished truth of your insights. He you couldn't play games with him that way and just well, give him the we, surface. And he really wasn't interested in superficial conversation. It was a very intense thing, actually. Someone has said, uh -huh. it sounds really intense, and it was. Um, but on the wall of his office in Pittsburgh was a quote from the Little Prince, uh, what is essential is invisible to the eye. From the time he was a kid, he was wanted to know about what he called your essential invisibles, no matter what they were. Uh, one of his favorite phrases was anything mentionable is manageable. Mm -hmm. He loved to quote the Catholic writer, Henry Nouwen, who said, what is most personal is most universal, which I interpret to mean that what is most personal are the things we're most ashamed of, frankly. And uh, their point was, especially in the face of how mightily we endeavor as human beings to conceal those things from one another for fear that if people knew, really knew how we were, what we were, then they really wouldn't like us. Well, Fred uh -huh. and Henry and others would say, those are precisely the things that we have most in common with other people. Anyway, so after six months of knowing him, I figured, you know, I, I kind of dreaded the day, but I knew it was necessary. I wrote him a letter and I said, Dear Fred, I'm really glad that we're friends, but if we're going to be friends, I think you need to know the truth of my life. And so I said, I told him about depression, my depression. I told him about problems in my marriage and pathologically low self-esteem. But ironically, at this time, I was winning every journalism award there was to win short of the Pulitzer. And it did nothing for this. Hmm. And it was one of the great, you know, great lessons, you know, I, from the outside, I was probably looked like my life was looking great, but if, I was dying inside. So I wrote him this letter and I said, at the heart of this, Fred, is this haunting notion that all of my life I've been trying to get my father to be proud of me. And for whatever I've done, I've never felt like I've succeeded. So I said, I have a question to ask you, you know, would you be proud of me? And Lord Almighty, why, why in the world I did that? Uh, but I did, and I you did <laughs> put I put it in an envelope and I mailed it away. And had I not, I don't think you and I would be talking today. You know that kind of vulnerability can lead in some really interesting directions. Uh, but anyway, his reply was, "Dear Tim, the answer to your question is yes." And capital letters and exclamation points are resounding yes. I am proud of you. I will be proud of you. I have been proud of you since first we met. And then he said, you know, that's kind of a Mr. Rogers thing to say. But then I think that more importantly, he said, I'm deeply touched that you would care to share so much of yourself with me and look forward to hearing all that you would care to share in the future. And another time he told me, your trust confirms my trustworthiness. Which is true when you think about it. When someone can really reveal themselves to another person in that way, that's what they're saying. 
you know, given another person the, one of the highest compliments, which is to say, I trust you. He said, your place in this life is unique, absolutely, absolutely unique. You know how special you really are. But then he said, nothing you could tell me could change my yes for you. Please remember that. And I didn't believe him, of course. There had to be something that I could say or do where he would find he would cross some sort of a line and he would say, sorry, Tim, I cannot. And so two years later, I write him a letter, another very difficult letter. And I say, you know, this is what's happening in my house. And so that, that is when he said, this is the test. Please know that I would never forsake you. That's really unreal. It's interesting that you mentioned some of these ideas, including the writer Henry Nowen, because one of the moments in the book that resonated with me was Henry Nowen's death, because we have a term that's taught to us in the Talmud. It's by Rabbi Duda the Prince, who says, I learned much from my teachers, even more from my colleagues, and most of all from my students. And at least in part, I think what that means to me is that it's very important for a leader or a teacher to allow himself to have a type of reciprocal relationship with those who are ostensibly the students. And at that moment, you talk about how Fred Rogers called you up because he needed someone who could understand how he was feeling and how touched you were, that you felt that it was truly a reciprocal relationship at that moment, that it wasn't purely Tim Madigan taking and Fred Rogers giving, but you actually were able to help him as well and how important that was for you. I think it's brilliant that you picked up on that because that was one, really one of the most important moments of our friendship because it showed precisely the things that you described, that A, he trusted me, that our relationship was a reciprocal one. It wasn't just me pouring out my heart and looking for consolation and guidance or whatever it was, that, that he trusted me at, this, at his most vulnerable moment. And I'll never forget the day you know, to which you refer a Saturday morning at home and the phone when my phone rang and it was him. And I could tell immediately that he, that he was weeping and he proceeded to tell me that Henry had died. Previously, Fred and I had discussed Henry at length and their friendship and how important Henry's work was to Fred. And he, and he said, I needed to talk to someone who would understand how I felt. Obviously, I wanted to be for Fred what he had been for me. I wanted to be present to him and I wanted to do what I, you know, do what I could. But again, I immediately wrote him and I told him what a profound thing that was, that he would share that moment with me. And so, yes, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we and I never really got to talk about uh, because he died too young. Right. Um, and you also mentioned, though, at a certain point that thankfully your life was in a much better place and sometimes you felt you didn't need that support in the same way you had in the past. It was always there. You each knew you were there for each other, but you had less of a need to pour your heart out because he had helped you so much and your life had taken such a better turn. Right. And that's, that's all true. You know, but part of it was, you know, the less in a less kind of acute phase of my life. And I figured that our relationship would, he would live to be, his wife just died, and I figured Fred would be at least that age before he died. That there would be there would be time for us to explore some of these, you know, the dynamics of our friendship, the source of his greatness, uh, all that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, and a lot of things, a lot of questions. I wish I, I could have asked him. 
You mentioned his wife, Joanne, who died just a few weeks ago at the age of 92. I know you weren't as close with her as you were with Fred, but you did meet her. You did talk with her at times. Can you share some of what she was like? Well, I don't, I can't give a good answer to that. You know, I've met her on a number of occasions. All I can say is that I know more about her from what I've read about her than what I experienced firsthand. And what I do know, what I did know firsthand is that Fred was extremely devoted to her and would include her in, you know, he would, whenever someone would come to visit, whether it was a reporter or a friend or whatever, Fred was, had this little camera that he would take. I think it was one of those old Polaroids, those instant developing things. And he would take snapshots of everybody he met and he would bring them home to show Joanne. And he would say, this is this guy I met or this is what happened to me today. And so I thought it was interesting uh, and, and a delightful in a you know in a, in a way that fred was very serious he woke up early to pray every morning and whatever reading he did uh, was spiritual reading and i don't think that there was a non-intentional you know kind of care you know he was just kind of that's who he was joanne on the other hand from what i understood watched trashy tv and read trashy <laughs> novels and was more recognizably human and she also served to humanize him some, I think. She complimented him that way. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, I, one time she told me they proposed or Fred proposed to her but via letter. I think she was in New York City and he was in Florida or wherever it was. And anyway, it was back in the 50s, I guess. She told me his favorite word was a certain expletive uh, <laughs> that uh, it begins with an S. And yeah. uh and I just thought it was delightful that Fred Rogers' favorite word was that. And she's in this phone booth and, you know, accepting his proposal. And he says, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm in, and she said, I'm in this phone book looking at your favorite word and, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking of you. Uh, so, so anyway. I, That's great. You know, Tim, discourse in the world today, at least it seems to me, has devolved in such troubling ways where our ability to talk to each other and to see people with whom we disagree as friends as opposed to enemies is becoming a rare experience. What message do you wish we could learn about that, about public discourse from Mr. Rogers' actions in life? I really wrestled with this. Is this one of the questions you wish you could ask him? I I wish he were alive today so we could talk about this. I'd be very Mm -hmm. curious to know. Some of the things that have happened in the United States in recent years have been very difficult. Fred would never take a position, a public position on a controversial matter. And part of his thinking was he didn't want to risk that adults who disagreed with him would prevent their children from watching his program. Mm -hmm. But you say what you will about our politics and whatever. We're in a tragically difficult and fraught place in the United States because every person, I swear to God, I I believe that every person, every family has had to come to terms with these deep divisions. Relationships and friendships have ended. Family relationships have been indelibly fractured and broken. And now that, you know, in recent weeks, the temperature has been turned down somewhat somewhat, and I think that people are in a somewhat more reflective mood. So I think that it's easier to go back to another thing that he really stood for, which was empathy. Mm -hmm. Try to walk in the shoes of another person and understand the influences, the history, 
that might have informed their thoughts and feelings. Even, you know, if someone were acting unkind to him, rather than be offended by that, his fallback was, I wonder what it is about that person's life that would cause him or her to act that way. And the, the, great, the best example of that, one of my favorite Fred stories of all time is on my first trip to, to Pittsburgh, uh, he invited me to go to church with him. So I did at this Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh, and he's just a member of the congregation, even though he was an ordained minister himself. And so he introduces me to his pastor and his wife and his friends, and he has his two grandkids next to him in the pew. And I think the fourth pew on the right-hand side, I remember it very specifically. And at the point in the service when the minister got up and asked people to share their joys and concerns, you know, someone would say, someone has cancer, pray for him, or someone has got a new job, or we have a new baby, and kind of the litany of things that are mentioned at a time like this. And then the last person to speak, I clearly want, I desperately wanted to turn around and look at her because she was clearly nuts. Mm-hmm. She launched into this long and embarrassing and somewhat deranged and long diatribe against war. She just went on and on and on and on. And you could just sense the level of mortification rising in the sanctuary. And you can almost hear the poor minister thinking to himself, what tactful thing can I say to get this woman to sit down and be quiet? Oh, finally she did. And they almost sense the people exhaling, you know, right. and, and in the thought bubbles, you know, who let her in? Right. Uh, the, the exception being, of course, the guy sitting next to me right. who leans over and whispers in my ear, that poor dear, don't you know that at some point in that woman's life, she suffered terribly because of war. And then at the end of the service, when she was at the rear of the standing by herself and clearly being ostracized, it was Fred and Fred alone who went up to her, gave her a hug and took as much time as she needed you know, to to tell him about whatever it was about war that had caused her such pain, you know, whether it made sense or not. Because to Fred, the only thing that mattered was, is that it made sense to her. And to me, that is one of the best examples of human greatness that that you can find. And I have quoted that story because I wish I could embody that kind of empathy, but it is such an example that we can all learn from. The idea of listening to someone make a fool of him or herself and yet say, obviously something is going on there, which I have to relate to and I can relate to if I really look deep enough. I think that's a really important practice to get into with people with whom you disagree. But I think this might be even more important. And and it's something that I've really wrestled with is that Fred embodied this mystical spiritual reality that we all as human beings share and that exists beneath or beyond or encompasses all our differences. And I just think that he would uh, encourage us to look at our neighbor from that perspective, Mm -hmm. not what our differences are, but what we share, the essential invisibles that we share. But Unfortunately, I'm only speculating because, again, God, I wish how, how much he would be alive today because, you know, obviously the world needs him so much. 
And because of books like yours and films and other media, he's in some ways more quoted now than perhaps he was even during his lifetime. At the same time, one of the quotes, which is always bandied about, is when he's told that always look for the helpers in times mm-hmm. of trouble. And mm-hmm. that's wonderful advice. But so many other things which he said, and which I know about from reading your book, sometimes get swept under the carpet simply because these become cliches as opposed to uh, mm-hmm. actual really deep ideas. Can you give an example or a couple of examples of some of the pieces of wisdom that you think we need to hear from Fred Rogers today? Oh, boy. I'm not sure that this is what you want, but I was just looking through the book the other day and he told me during one of my, after one of my letters, I poured myself out to him. He, he said, your wounded heart is a beautiful heart and whose heart isn't wounded in some way. And he said, some of us are just better than others, better at it than others, others to disguise that. I think that the deal about it is, is that he and Henry Nowen and others were inviting us in very subtle but profound ways to embrace our humanity in its entirety. Henry himself was a very broken person and was one of the, Fred, Fred sent me one of Henry's last books. And he said, I think this is Henry's best book because it's most vulnerable. And it was Henry, Henry's journal after he had suffered what appeared to be some sort of a nervous breakdown where Henry was saying, here I am this revered writer and I can, can't get out of bed in the morning because, you know, whatever, you know, to invite humanity to come out of hiding and embrace them, our messy parts. And one of my favorite stories is, and interesting about this stuff is, is that I've told a version of my, the story of my friendship with Fred and the lessons of it to audiences from the oldest in the nursing home to the youngest in the elementary school, because I think that's proof that, you know, and so I have to alter it a bit, but that's proof that the language of the heart has no age. But I was, I was giving this to my talk to like 1200 kids in a gymnasium in Tampa, Florida, junior high school kids, okay, predominantly African-American and Hispanic, low-income school. Uh, not that that is relevant to anything probably, but it just kind of you know, gives you a, a sense of the scene. Um, so I tell this story about my friendship with Fred and my own suffering and how Fred mentored me through it. And, and uh, so at the end of it, I said to these kids, I have a confession to make. And you could kind of sense them leaning forward. And I said, I'm a mess. I said, you know, maybe not as much of a mess as I was 20 years ago, but still a mess. And they, there's loud <laughs> applause. It's like, oh, man, he screwed up, too. This is, this old guy screwed up, too. And then I said, well, I said before you get carried away, I just got another, there's another piece of this. And I said, you're a mess, too. Uh-huh. Every last one of you are a mess. You know, this time the applause is even louder. I said, but you know, there's another word for mess. And a little girl in the front row says, human. I says, that's exactly right. Well, and then I concluded by saying, here is the good news. Is that none of us have to be messes alone. And they literally took the roof off that place. That was Fred's message. Anything mentionable is manageable. That's incredible. And you know, there's a Jewish Hasidic teaching that's very similar to what you just said, this idea that the only full heart is a broken heart. And that idea represents the same idea as well, that we all are brokenhearted. And having a broken heart is a sign of our humanity and a sign of something deeply good inside of us. I I just couldn't agree more. And, And, 
you mentioned my brother's death and Fred was uh, part of that. And, you know, he was 41 when he, my Steve was 41 when he died and he suffered, died a really terrible, painful death. Through that illness, Steve had discovered things about himself, inner things about himself that he had, he had a very difficult life and, and it was transformative. He became this kind of spiritual giant himself to, uh, but there were moments during that time that were just so exquisitely beautiful and so exquisitely profound. And there were moments of grace provided by both Fred and Steve and other people in our family, moments of love and that I don't think you can experience any other way, but in, in the heart of suffering. And so, and you know, my own theory is that that is where God lives, not in the tumor, not in the whatever, but in the grace notes that allow us to endure the unendurable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so to speak to your notion of the broken heart, the broken heart being a beautiful heart, I think part of what ails us as a world, as a species, is that too few of us will, can embrace that. We see a broken heart as a character defect rather than as a uh, part of our humanity. Well, Tim, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I've been a fan, as I mentioned, for a long time, particularly through the book, and you really reveal your heart in that book. It's such an open, honest book. It's painful at times because you're so open and honest, but it's also very beautiful to see your own honesty, your own relationship with your family, your relationship with Fred Rogers, and the fact that you opened up is a benefit to everybody. And I personally have gained so much. And I want to thank you for writing that book and for talking to me today, because it means a lot to me. And it's really an honor to talk to you after admiring you from afar for so long. Well, it's a blessing for me too. And thank you for all you've done for the book and uh, my my best to uh, everyone listening today. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for joining me today. Please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast, share and tell your friends about it and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Join the new Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook, where we've had some fascinating and hopefully productive discussions about how to make Orthodox Judaism live up to its very high standards and impressive ideals. Visit jewishcoffeehouse.com to find some of the very best podcasts in the Jewish world, including Chochmat Nashim, Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. Please also consider joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team as a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get great bonus podcasts, excellent merch, and more while helping Jewish Coffeehouse to reach our growing audience. Finally, if you're interested in having your own podcast, Jewish Coffeehouse can help make it happen. We'll assist you with anything you need. We can teach you the skills to make a podcast that sounds as good as an FM radio show. We can help you with recording, editing, music, graphic art, promotion, and more. We can give you tips on podcast styles, interviewing, hosts, guests, and everything else you need to make your podcast the best it can be. Whatever you need, Jewish Coffeehouse will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. A great way to get started is with my upcoming free podcasting class on Wednesday, February 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or 8 p.m. Israel Time. I'll be speaking for 45 minutes about how to get your podcast started, and I'll also have 15 minutes for questions at the end. All you have to do is register by writing to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and I will send you a Zoom invitation. And if you can't make it at that time, but would like to hear the class anyway, write to me, and I'll send you a link to the recorded video afterwards. Again, that's scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and let me help you get started, reaching hundreds or even thousands of people with a high-quality podcast. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.